listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. I'm really excited about today. We have been in a series, which we're not in a series anymore. Uh, We were in a series that ran up to uh, now called uh, Everyday More, but last week we sort of broke from the series. Sarah preached on humility. Uh, I'm preaching on something tonight. This is a little bit of a like, what do we call this? Is it a series? It's really just what we feel God's putting on our hearts just for a few weeks. And I really felt particularly praying into tonight um, this really interesting sense that this is a, a really important message for some people in the room that God wanted to say something. It's a funny Sunday. Normally, Father's Day is like this funny one where lots of people are away at Father's Day lunches. Sometimes people come in the morning and bring their parents, bring their dad. Um, And so the 5 p.m. service is an interesting one. And then we just had like literally like, Britt was right, it was teasing us with spring. I woke up this morning, it was quite warm, it was sunny. It was just like Melbourne, like mm, summer spring and then like father winter came out from behind a bush and just beat us up for a moment there uh but it's sort of it was sunny a second i was going to talk about how the sun had come out but now it's gone back in again but four seasons in one day that's what it is to be a melburnian but there's this real sense i felt that whoever was here tonight this was a really key message for us as a church for you as an individual for what god wants to do in the next season to talk about this i want to look at a scripture um which is from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 22 to 23. And this is actually in the midst of a speech that Paul is giving in Poseidon, Antioch. And I don't so much want to focus on the speech that Paul's giving as much as just these few verses where Paul is going back deep into the history of Israel, speaking of a time when Israel had asked for a king, gotten a king in this person of Saul, um, and really that's where I want to sort of just, just land. Let's just read this text. After removing Saul, he made David their king. So from King Saul to King David. God testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God, had brought, God has brought to Israel, the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. In life, one of the ways that we look at life and one of the ways that we judge the success of life is through a framework which many of us have just picked up because it's in the air all around us. This concept that comes to us through a few different psychologists, Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, this idea of self-actualization, that if you get a certain amount of things, have a certain amount of experiences, that then you reach this point and then you're sort of actualized, you've passed the test, you have a good life. And so, so many of us actually measure our lives through this prism, waiting to get to this moment when, hang on, we've made it. And it's really interesting how life, that's a great theory, but so often life works very differently. About two months ago, um, I was sitting on top of a building in Manhattan, 
And this is a photo I took of that moment. This is the top of a building of my friend's church. It has a building in Manhattan. They stay. They've got a guest house there. When you come and speak at their church, and you're not far from Times Square in the midst of just Manhattan is so huge and so loud and so crazy. Like, really, it's the world capital. And I'd finished speaking for the Saturday. I was preaching the next day, and I just was by myself, and I got my dinner and sat up on this incredible rooftop garden on this building. And it's like that 360s, sort of these valleys of buildings. And as I sat there, it was one of those moments where I felt God really deeply speak to me. Weirdly, New York has this bizarre moment in Red's history. In 2009, uh, I took over leading Red and became the leader of what was the Red Network, four different churches across Melbourne. Uh, Sarah came on board at that time. For the first year, we just did a whole bunch of back-end, didn't exactly know what was going on or where the church was going. Without a vision, the people perish, and it felt a little bit like that. We knew that we were sort of, in a sense, plugging holes, but where did God want to take us? And visiting same friend's church in 2010, in the midst of worship, just before I got up to preach, it was like God began to unravel where he wanted things to go, the kind of church that he wanted Red to be. And as I sat two months ago on the top of this building, just breathing and exhaling after really a decade of just hard yards of building Red and seeing what God was doing through Red, I looked back and was astounded of how God had taken this church that was in this fragile position and what he'd done through red. But the other thing I also was astounded at was that in 2010, I was in a fragile place. I was not well. People were really worried about me. And what's so interesting is when you look at life through the self-actualization framework, you expect it to happen in a climactic Hollywood moment. And as I sat there, realizing that 10 years earlier I'd been there, and I looked at how change had happened incrementally. What he done for me? What he done for Red? What he done for so many people at Red who, when I thought back to 10 years ago, where they were, people have come to faith in that period, people whose faiths have been changed, people whose inner worlds have been rebuilt, all the different things, the way that he's rebuilt me, he's rebuilt me and Trudy's life, our family's life, all these things that has happened has been absolutely incredible. So it was bright sun, warm day in New York, and I sat there for three to four hours just marveling at what God had done. But then, over the river, the sun started to go down, the blue sky started to turn into a pinkish hue, and the lights started to come on all across Manhattan, incredible bright lights of Times Square, which I'm sure you can see from space, it's so bright and loud, all these billboards and huge screens. And that moment of reflecting began to stop. And I realized that what was happening and what was God was signaling to me was that a chapter was ending. 
a period of 10 years. And when you get into a period of 10 years, I realized that in a sense I got into a pattern of how I was operating. But God was clearly saying that what had been was starting to end. And I began to sense as the sun went completely down and it became night, that God wasn't just getting me to reflect and marvel and praise him for what had happened. God was beginning to whet my appetite about what he wanted to do next. Weirdly, I'm in New York, capital of the world, never shuts down that city, there's always something happening. But I felt weirdly not present. God moved my attention away from this very loud, eye-grabbing city. And weirdly, I worked out the direction of Australia. And I felt this drawing towards Melbourne. What was God going to do in the next season at Red? What's the next thing that God wants to do? God is a God who moves seasonally. Let's continue to look at this passage. I want to pick out just four words there. When it talks about David, it notes that David is the son of Jesse. Today we don't talk about people directly collected to their parents, but so many names in different ethnic cultures actually refer to who you are related to. Son in a lot of the Norse and, and, and Scandinavians, if you've got a name at the end of your, like Thompson, or my son is called Hudson, which means son of the hooded man, um, whichever I'm wearing a hoodie gets pointed out to me. And this sense that you're connected to who you come from. Now here, we have David, son of Jesse, which you don't have the surname, you have this sense that who David is, is a human in the line of a chain of humans. God is eternal, but humans are chapters in of themselves. And this is really key to understand, to understand this passage and what God does here. We understand the nature of God and the fact that there's things about God which do not change. His goodness, his lovingness, his, his kindness, his righteousness, his sense of justice, his moving things towards where he's going to take it. That does not change. His gospel does not change. The word of God does not change. There are things about God which are continuous that do not change. But then what's really interesting is when you look at Scripture, when you look at church history, when you look at how God moves in our lives, we have discontinuous moves of God. God, who is ever-present, God who is omnipotent, who knows all and his presence is everywhere, strangely at the same time comes in power and glory and his spirit comes in an anointed moment. The word anointing in the biblical sense is often accompanied with this sense of a pouring of oil. When someone is poured for oil, they're set apart for a task. And so there's this biblical concept that at times individuals are anointed, movements are anointed, places are anointed, and God turns up in power and glory and does something. And so the history of how God moves is discontinuous and it seems to move around in different hearts, different places, different times. This is really key to understand 
when we understand how God will work in us as individuals, but also in churches and in movements. If you've been part of a denomination or a church or a Christian movement, there is often, when you look back in the history, a starting point, a spark, which begins when the Holy Spirit comes, glory comes on a group of men or women, often first with an individual and then others, and there's this move of God, and God just turns up as an act of grace. Almost undeservedly does this happen. And then around that move of God, a movement begins. It's often a reaction from people who are drawn to this move of God. But then, often at the moment, when it seems like this movement is highly successful, when the measures and trappings of effectiveness, platform, the stuff that we long to see, almost without us knowing, God can begin to take his hand off. It's really hard to know when that moment is, and it's happening because often we don't see it because we're looking with earthly metrics. And what happens is, outwardly, things may look the same. Things even may seemingly get more popular. But the glory has departed. God's hand has been removed. The Spirit has moved. And so a movement, in a sense, can become a machine. I don't mean like a big organization as much as a machine which is no longer powered by the Holy Spirit, by the glory of God, rather is just now powered by human striving. And then eventually, when we realize that the move is not coming back and human power is not going to bring the power of the Holy Spirit, the last step is it turns into a museum. Looking back at that time, do you remember when God did these things? There's museums put up, and it's great to remember. It's really actually important to biblically remember what God did and God's salvific, salvation moments that he does through history. But when that's when all our identity is in what God did in the past, not what he's doing now, he's going to do in the future, that movement turns into a machine and then becomes a museum to a memory which we're continually trying to resuscitate in our own strength. And at some point, every life, every individual will find that process sometimes happening to them if they're not aware. Let's go back to the first sentence of this passage, Acts 13, 22. It says this, After removing Saul, he made David their king. What we have here is God actually taking his hand off someone and then placing his anointing on someone else. Saul to David. Artie Kendall explains it this way, that Saul is yesterday's man and David is tomorrow's man. In the book of 1 Samuel, the really interesting thing is that we see Saul at one time operating in power. He is called by God. He meets the company of prophets and is prophesying in the Holy Spirit of God, speaking for God but even while he's still king, 
even while he has earthly platform and influence, God takes his hand off and puts it on this guy who is living out in the black box, who is just young, who he anoints in secret, and David becomes tomorrow's man. And so this leaves us with two super important questions at this moment that I think are more important than just an interesting side note in a sermon. These are questions which are deeply important to where we are at this moment in what God is doing at the moment. They're important for us as a church and they're important for us as individuals. The first question is, how do we avoid becoming yesterday's person? How do we avoid becoming yesterday's person? Well, we're still operating of the last move, but God's actually taken his hand. Is there things that we can do which actually cause God to remove his hand? If you want to turn with me to 1 Samuel 13, we're going to see how this happens really quickly. I'm just going to jump around a few bits. What we have is a story where Saul in verse 7 is in battle and he's facing an enemy And Saul is waiting for Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. God is speaking to Samuel after a period of there being very few obedient people amongst the people of God. Samuel listens to God. Samuel is a holy man. And Saul is waiting for Samuel to do his task. Saul is a king. Samuel is a prophet. They have particular lanes that God has asked them to move in. But Saul looks around him in this battle and Samuel's meant to come and do his spiritual stuff to actually be a prophet, to offer up his priestly role of offering up an offering to God. But Saul remains and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men begin to scatter some key components here. So he's waiting. I'm waiting for the guy to come who said he was going to do this, but he's not coming. And I look around and the people I'm meant to be leading are freaking out. And not only are they freaking out, they're actually starting to scatter. Impatience comes in. And so he says, verse 9, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel? Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal so that I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled. Compelled. He doesn't go on what God is saying. He goes on his inner compulsions and desires which is driven by an impatience and a fear. Verse 13, you've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. When we jump forward to chapter 15, this goes backwards and forwards between Samuel and Saul. And then 
Basically, we have Samuel looking for Saul in verse 12, chapter 15, verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up, went to meet Saul, but was told Saul has gone up to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. God has actually turned up. God has turned up in his glory. God has turned up and people are to honor him. He's anointed Saul. But there's that moment where Saul confuses the glory of God for his own glory. When God turns up and brings success, it's so tempting for humans to think that that success is ours. To make an identity out of the gifts of God and the goodness and grace that the Lord gives. To look not to him, but what he has done as a way of constructing a sense of meaning in order to impress others. Really, really interesting. This chat goes on between Saul and Samuel, which gets to the bare bones of what is happening with Saul, of why he violated this law. And in verse 24, the second part of 24, he says this. This gets down to the crux. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. God is looking for a man or a woman after his own heart. Saul becomes yesterday's man when he is more afraid of the people than he is obedient of what God has to say to him. We become therefore yesterday's person when we swap God's honour for our own honour. When we obey the voice of the crowd, peers, the public, culture, more than the voice of God. And when, what, what, it's so interesting because actually what Saul does on the surface seems seri- seemingly like the right religious thing to do. He maintains the right religious thing. He offers up to God this offering so that God will be with them in the battle. But it's not what God has asked him to do. And Christians, one of the things that devil wants to do is get us stuck in religious habit and ritual, and repetition, and sometimes repetition is good. Humans need repetition to shape us, but we can keep doing the stuff that God got us to do in the move once the move is over, and very quickly, yesterday's moves of the move are removed. I think that made sense. So therefore, we're left with the second more important question then how do we not be yesterday's person? How do I be tomorrow's person? Because at the moment, I believe we're at a chapter break. I believe we're coming out of a stage, which I think has lasted maybe 20 years, where it was about how do we be relevant in this growing Western culture, filled with post-Christianity and secularism? How do we remain relevant? How do we just hold on while this wave seemingly comes against us? But the Spirit of God is going out into the world and He's looking for tomorrow's man, tomorrow's woman, tomorrow's boy, tomorrow's girl. And who is He looking for? And we go back to this Scripture. 
It says, I have found David, son of Jesse. Again, to look at that. God speaking, I have found. That means if God has found, he is looking. God is in the world seeking out. His spirit is looking, not for the people who look impressive from earthly standards, not for the most talented people, not for the best looking people, not for the most popular people, not for the people with the most university degrees or Instagram followers. He is looking for who? A man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. Heart more than talent. Heart more than accolades. Heart more than achievement. And not heart in the sense of, wow, he's a great person. Look at that fighter. He's got a real heart. This is someone whose heart is after God. Other translations say, a man whose heart beats after the heart of God, who's in synergy. Step with God. And so, at this moment, I believe one of the most important things for you, if you are now in church at 5 p.m. in 2019 on Father's Day, when it is pouring and bucketing with rain and you're having a nice day, but now it's like zero degrees and sleet, not really, but it felt like it, If you are still here at this moment, you're part of the moment when we're moving beyond cultural Christianity and religious repetition into the moment where God is asking the question, who are the next people that are going to advance what I want to do in the world right now? Who are the people upon which I can begin to tell a new story? Who are the people who, as Isaiah said, are going to rebuild the ancient ruins? Who are the people who are going to find a way in the wasteland and the desert? Who are the people, who are the churches which are actually going to turn to me for the next thing that I want to do? Who are the friends who are going to get together and actually love God more than they love each other and be bound together in a new way where we walk together and iron sharp as iron and we cheer each other on into the new future that God wants to do? Who are the people at this moment who are actually going to say, I am all in? to what you want to do at this moment, which is no longer about being resilient. This is actually about the rebuild. Who are the people who are going to switch from mode regular to actually mode renewal at this time? People who are after God's heart. After God's heart. So how do we then get hearts after God? The first thing is we develop voice recognition. Voice recognition. And some of you are stepping into this. We learnt about prophecy, how God speaks. We learnt about how he sends his word to us and how we listen to that through the written word, through what he's saying to us. John 10 verse 4, speaking of Jesus, says he goes on ahead of them and we want to follow him into the next season. God actually wants you to follow him into the next season and we follow behind him like sheep because he's the good shepherd. And how do we follow him? The shepherd leads the sheep through the wilderness, protecting them from briars and rocks and cliffs and wolves through what? His voice. His voice. Father's Day. When you are a father, one of the most incredible moments 
is when you realize that the baby that you've brought into the world, you didn't do half the work, three quarters, 99% of the work of the birth. You sort of stood there, held a hand, or in my case, like, go and get a coffee, love. They sent me out. Get a coffee. (laughs) Is when you speak and you see your son or daughter following your voice. They can't see you. Their eyes haven't fully developed their focus. But they can hear this voice. Your voice is like a north star to them, like a GPS, setting a direction in the world. People with a heart after God, in all the hubbub and blare of the world, the cacophony of the 21st century, learn to listen to the still, small voice, which Elijah heard when he's fleeing from Jezebel. Hearts after God are hearts that are tuned to God's voice. And when our hearts are tuned to God's voice, when we're listening to his voice above all others, pausing, stopping, quietly meditating on his word, listening for what he has to say, becoming sensitive to the spirit, This is something you step into. It doesn't happen instantaneously. This is something that's happening to many of us in this room and others are going to continue to step into this. What happens is our thoughts, our feelings and desires are aligned with God. A heart, when spoken of in scriptures, cardia in the Greek, in the New Testament as it's used in Acts, what that means is not just the blood pumping organ in your chest. Rather, this means the seat of your feelings, your will, your desires, your thoughts, your innermost world that no one else can access, no one else can see, where you can plot evil or wish good on other people. Sometimes it's a mess of different emotions, but that central part of who you are and what makes you different from other people, when that is captured with voice recognition to what the shepherd is saying, we start to beat with God's heartbeat. Our heart starts to mirror. When we sing together, did you know that humans' hearts start to beat as one? This is what God wants of us. Romans 12, verse 2 in the message translation says this, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. So easy today. Instead, fix your attention on God. Remember, attention is worship. What you're looking at, you're worshiping. Set what you're looking at to Him. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. You know what God wants you to do because your heart is now aligned to His. Your voice understands His voice. And when you're hearing His voice, you have voice recognition. When your heart is aligned with His heart, then, then you begin to understand that God is the God of new things, that He is going ahead. The reason He moves 
ahead of past moves is not because he just gets bored and is into novelty. It's because he's actually moving history to his ends. He wants to bring new things. His mission is that every tongue confess in the world, that his gospel goes out across all nations, that heaven comes to earth. And so, when our heart is after God, we look for and behold the new thing. Isaiah 43, verses 18 to 19 says this, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Why do we dwell on the past? Why do we not forget the former things? We dwell on the past when our identity and what is what we think is who we are is defined by the last thing that happened. The prophet Isaiah says, See, and so interesting to see, you've actually got to Take off your old lenses and open your eyes to the new thing that God is doing. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Where is the new thing springing up? Is it springing up in the garden? No. Is it springing up in the forest? No. Is it springing up in the place where everyone expects it? No. The eyes of faith see that it is beginning where? In the wilderness where supposedly nothing grows, in the wasteland where nothing good emerges. But through faith, God goes into those uninhabitable places which are overrun and ruined with sin and death and decay and stagnation, and God actually does something new. It's so tempting to look back five minutes ago at seemingly what God just did, or 10 years ago, or even what he seems to be doing now, but actually his hand is off, and to look, and through earthly eyes, the places which where nothing much seems to be happening, but God's going to do the next thing. Some of you, at the moment, All you can see is the wasteland. All you can see is the wilderness. And the thing that the enemy, remember who comes in the wilderness and the wasteland? In the Gospels, the devil. And the devil wants to say to you, "Ah, your best days are past. Remember when faith was just easy. Maybe it was when you were 18. Maybe it was when you first became a Christian. Maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was when you had more options. Whatever, a year ago. He wants to say, best days are behind you. And you know what? They're just going to be hard. Stick in there. Be a Christian. Push forward. But gee, it's awful. (laughs) Stick in there. Go on. Suffering now. But you got the Bible. Just keep going forward. He wants to tell you that Christianity is going to be terrible. But John 10.10 says, I have come so you may have life in abundance. Life in abundance. Now, Scripture tells us there's going to be times of suffering. Scripture tells us there's going to be times of difficulty. Hebrews tells us that actually God uses those things to discipline and grow us into who He wants to be. When I'm saying life abundant, I'm not talking Lamborghinis. I'm actually talking the Holy Spirit coming and empowering you and actually giving you meaning and actually purpose and looking at the world through the eyes that the Spirit gives where life actually becomes this symphony. And the most ordinary things can be where God actually turns up. We're waiting for a bus. It's not a place of boredom, but actually a place to sit and listen to what the Spirit wants to say to you. So some of you have had a number done on you that grinded out. This is what it is. It's just going to be wastelands and wilderness going forward. But I want to say to you that God wants to do a new thing. What a chapter break. 
And the Spirit hovers over the wilderness and wasteland like at the beginning of creation in the book of Genesis. And when Spirit encounters unformed chaos, something new begins. New creation emerges. And we're at a new creation moment. And so for Red, we're going to be really careful that we don't miss the new thing because we're so focused on what's happening now or what's just happened. We can look back and go, look, 10 years ago, we were 25 people. Look at all the different things God's done through us. Look at all the nice things people say about Red. And we can miss that God wants us to be attuned to the next thing. Where is His Spirit landing next? Let's not camp out now where we think God last moved. What's the next thing that he wants to do? Because even in new churches, very quickly we can get stuck in tradition and doing it the same way as we've always done. So, people with a heart after God allow humility. And if you didn't hear Sarah's sermon last week on this topic, please go back and listen to the podcast. We allow humility responsiveness to God's word to be formed in the hidden places. Just for a sec, place your hand here. I'm not doing it properly because it will smash the microphone here. But just place your hand on the top of your chest. Let's get interactive. It's not really a big interactive thing. This is very simple. And feel your heart. Now, actually, you can't feel your heart. You might, if you get in the right place, feel a... But really, you're just more feeling the shock of your heart pushing your chest. In fact, what do you feel? You actually don't feel your heart. You feel your sternum, ribs, protecting your heart. Because your heart is not like your nose. It's not like your teeth. It's not like your hair or your elbows which can actually be seen. Your heart is integral to your survival and who you are. If someone's heart stops in this room, the service will stop and we're going to be ringing zero, zero, zero because you need your heart. But your heart is hidden. It's actually in a secret place hidden in this cave that is our body. And so, people with hearts after God God forms hearts in the hidden places, in the secret places. God sees the heart of humans. He knows the things that no one else sees, understands what happens when no one's looking. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What some of you have felt like might be endless wasteland and wilderness needs to be reframed actually as preparation and training that God is doing now in a time of hiddenness. David has the anointing. Samuel comes to him, anoints him. He's just some shepherd boy out in the middle of nowhere, and Saul is still on the crown. He is still the king. Everyone sees Saul is the king, and you know what, not just that, that's bad enough in itself. Imagine me told you're king, but no one's going to know about it. Someone turns up at your door and says, by the way, we've discovered that you are the rightful heir to the British crown. We've done the family tree. You are the king or queen of Britain now. It's official. But you can't tell anyone. 
Actually, I saw a documentary about this farmer in, I think he's in South Australia, and they've worked out that because, like, in the 1200s, there was some king who got someone pregnant. They thought, like, he, he's... No, that's right. He, the queen got pregnant when he was away for two years, which is not possible. And then they worked out the most likely culprit, and they did all the family tree, and technically this guy is, they think, the king of England. And he's a farmer in South Australia. And he just, like, goes to the pub and wears hard yakka. And, and like, what's he going to do? Is he just going to rock up? Maybe he actually could at the moment. Maybe with Parliament, does, you know, not meeting, maybe he could rock up and just say Brexit. But, <laughs> but David is told he is king while Saul's still on the crown. Now, secondly, you know what also happens to David? David is then, not only that's hard enough, if you're someone who's craving glory, then next, David is told to go and serve the guy whose role he's meant to have. To play him music to calm him down because he has a temper problem. Then, if that's not hard enough, Saul then comes after David. So now Saul is trying to kill him. And there's that moment when David's on the run and he encounters Saul and he has the opportunity to kill Saul. And he doesn't. He gets a little cheeky. What does he do? He cuts off a bit of his cloak. And even then, the guilt comes on him because he can't even touch him. Why? Because God is developing character, humility, responsiveness to God's word in David. He is developing character and he has the anointing before he has the platform so that when he has the platform, when he has the opportunity that he will be a man after God's heart. There's plenty of people who are humble because they're in humble situations. God is looking for people who will still be humble when they actually have influence. And so God develops humility in the hidden places. Compromise is toxic to the hidden places. We are moving from an era where how close can we get to that line where we're almost like the world to actually a time now of holiness, of hunger after God, of actually stepping away from things to be formed by Him in those hidden places. And then, as we begin to do this, we begin to choose God's courage. At some point, that forming in the hidden places starts to then come out into overflow. And we choose God's courage over confidence and our comfort. We stay in last season almost always because of comfort. If you come in next week and we've turned this entire hall around and the stage is up the back and the chair's here, probably a third of you will freak out. Be ripping your hair out, freaking out. Go to your workplace and move the biscuit tin. Move where people park their cars. Move people's offices. These tiny little things and it's literally like just a bomb has gone off. Humans are so formed by habit and what we do all the time. But when God comes, it says this in Joshua 1, verses 7 to 9. Joshua has come after Moses, who looks back and goes, the anointing on Moses. How on earth am I meant to go forward into the promised land? Moses looked like the guy who was going to take them into the promised land. And Joshua has God speak to him. 
And it says this, I won't give up on you, speaking to Joshua. I won't leave you. Strength, courage. You're going to lead these people to inherit the land that I promised to give their ancestors. Give it everything you have, heart and soul. Don't be timid. Don't be discouraged. God, your God, is with you every step you take. There is this element then that the people who God has been forming, who see the next thing that God is going to do, they understand that they can't do it. They have to contend for it, which is this strange part posture of not being able to do in your own strength, but then not being passive and actually be willing to be used by God and step into the land that God is actually leading you into. When the humble start marching, when the holy start walking forward, when we actually choose God's courage and confidence over our comfort. And that moment is here. Some of you are still being formed in the hidden places. Others, it's now beginning to be go time. Passivity is one of the devil's great plans to hold back a next move, particularly when you're worried what other people think of you. Australian guys, weirdly, weirdly, so afraid to step forward at times because afraid that we'll get stabbed in the back. Females, it's hard sometimes in Australia because you know that what other people are going to say. When you step in a different direction to your friends and you start pushing deeper into God, that's going to sometimes have social cost. When as a church we push more into what God wants, that can upset people because people like comfort. But when God is going to do the next thing, that's when we move forward, not in our courage, but actually God's courage. Why? does this all happen? Why does God want people with a heart after him? It says this in the next verse. I want a man after my own heart. Why? Because he will do everything I want him to do. Obedience. God is seeking a dwelling place. God is everywhere. God's dream is for heaven and earth to be reunited. God's temple is the entire cosmos. When sin came into the world, disobedience expelled God from the human heart. When Jesus died on the cross, he enabled Jesus to come back into our hearts. God wants to dwell in the obedient heart. The obedient heart is the place where he can come home again and be present to where he is called. And then in the last verse, we see why. From this man's descendants, this act of obedience in David. What comes out of that? From this man's descendants, God has brought Israel, the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Those little decisions that David made in moments of humility and hiddenness, those decisions he made as he sought his heart to be like God's, all of them then opened a key, a door to what? God's tomorrow. Obedience is fuel for God's tomorrow. God is looking for people whose hearts are after his. God is calling people in this room to step forward. God has been forming some of you and you haven't had the language to understand it. God is forming people here and knocking on doors of opportunity. God has been doing stuff and it's felt painful, but it needs to be reframed actually as preparation. God is wanting to do a new thing, not to let you get stuck looking backwards. He is planting seeds in the future and maybe you can't see the shoots coming out of the ground, but God is the sower and wants to do something new because a forest is coming 
tomorrow. God is saying to Red, here is a new chapter. Don't get stuck on what you just did and what you just achieved. What's the next thing I want to do at this moment in history here in Melbourne and in the world? God is wanting a new future for you. Do you see it? Let's stand. Father, you tell us that without vision, the people perish. And so, Father, without a sense that anything is going to happen, we can perish. We don't perish physically, but we perish spiritually. We perish emotionally. So, Father, I want to pray now for hearts after you, hearts ready to beat in sync with you, hearts humble and supple and responsive to your word. God, we know this is now a new moment. We know many are walking away from your cause at this moment because the time of ritual, ritual is over. And now it's actually about the time for those whose hearts are after you. And out of that obedient hearts, that God, you're going to build a new thing. And Father, at Red, we don't have a long history, multiple generations to build stuff upon. This is a new thing that you're doing at the moment, Jesus. But Father, we want to be at the forefront of the next thing your Spirit wants to do in the world. And I know many of the stories in this room, Father, which have gone on for some time and in this, that perseverance, it can feel like actually there's not a tomorrow. But I just want to proclaim in Jesus' name that you are doing a new thing and Father, we want to see it. So Holy Spirit, come now. We know you're here, but we want to align our hearts with your presence. We want to be open houses where the front door is open for you to come into, to remake us into who you want us to be. Jesus, we want to align our thoughts, our desires, our feelings with you. Father, I just want to break off any ties to our identity being in last things that you did, our identity being in anything but you. I want to thank you, Father, for what particularly you've been doing here at the five in the last 12 months, a renovation of the heart. But Father, we want more. We don't just want preparation. We want to step into the next moment, the next move. God, we don't put any parameters on that. We're not the designers of that. You are Jesus. So, Father, at this moment, we want nothing more than you and your guidance. We want to be that sheep listening to your voice. So, Holy Spirit, come. Lead and guide us as individuals. Lead and guide us as Red Church. So, what we're going to do is we're going to worship. We're going to sing out to God. As we sing, our hearts will begin to beat with each other's, but our heart will also begin to beat with God's. And if there's something in you where you're wanting to step into that next season, if your heart's been in preparation, 
if God's been doing stuff inside and maybe that's even felt painful or isolating at times, now is the time to actually claim and to step into that next thing. There'll be some space down the front. I encourage you to come and mark that by spending time with Him here on your knees as we press into the next thing. There'll be people here. Also, if you just want prayer, a blessing over what He wants to do next. It's Father's Day. God had a purpose for you to be here. God is doing something. He's building and molding something. The Holy Spirit's moving right now amongst us. Let's let Him do His thing now.